Chapter 11, Part 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 11, Part 2. Married Life in London. One felt always, with both Francis and Gilbert, that this society life stayed on the surface, amusing, distracting, sometimes welcome, sometimes boring, but never infringing the deeper reality of their relationships with old friends and with their own families, with each other. Francis wrote endless business and other letters for them both. In just a handful, mainly to Father O'Connor, does she show her deeper life of thought and feeling. Gilbert had little time now for writing anything but books and articles. Never a very good correspondent, he had become an exceedingly bad one. Annie Furman's engagement to Robert Kidd produced one of the few letters that exist. It is handwritten and undated. A restaurant somewhere. My dear Annie, I have thought of you, I am quite certain, more often than I have thought of any human being for a long time past except my wife, who recalls herself continually to me by virtues, splendors, agreeable memories, screams, pokers, brickbats, and other things. And yet, though whenever my mind was for an instant emptied of theology and journalism and patriotism and such rot, it has been immediately filled with you. I have never written you a line. I am not going to explain this, and for a good reason. It is a part of the mystery of the mail, and you will soon, even if you do not already, get the hang of it by the society of an individual who, while being unmistakably a much better man than I am, is nevertheless male. I can only say that when men want a thing, they act quite differently to women. We put off everything we want to do in an ordinary way. If the Archangel Michael wrote me a complimentary letter tomorrow, as perhaps he may, I should put it in my pocket, saying, How admirable a reply shall I write to that in a week or a month or so. I put off writing to you because I wanted to write something that had in it all that you have been to me, to all of us, and now instead I am scrawling this nonsense in a tavern after lunch. My very dear old friend, I am of a sex that very seldom takes real trouble that forgets the little necessities of time that is by nature lazy. I never wanted really but one thing in my life, and that I got. Any person inspecting 60 overstrand mansions may see that somewhat excitable thing, free of charge. In another person, whom with maddening jealousy I suspect of being some inches taller than I am, I believe I notice the same tendency toward monomania. He also... Being, as I have so keenly pointed out, male, he also, I think, has only wanted one thing seriously in his life. He also has got it. Another male weakness, which I recognize with sympathy. All my reviewers call me frivolous. Do you think all this kind of thing frivolous? Damn it all, excuse me. What can one be but frivolous about serious things? Without frivolity, they are simply too tremendous. That you, who, with your hair down your back, played at bricks with me in a house of which I have no memory except you and the bricks, that you should be taken by someone of my miserable sex, as you ought to be, what is one to say? 
I am not going to wish you happiness because I am quite placidly certain that your happiness is inevitable. I know it because my wife is happy with me, and the wild, weird, extravagant, singular origin of this is a certain enduring fact in my psychology which you will find paralleled elsewhere. God bless you, my dear girl. Yours ever, Gilbert Chesterton. Married in 1903, Annie and her husband took another flat in Overstrand Mansions. Gilbert never cared what he wore, she writes. I remember one night, when my husband and I were living in the same block of flats, he came in to ask me to go down and sit with Francis, who wasn't very well, while he went down to the house to dine with Hugh Law. Gilbert was very correctly dressed, except for the fact that he had on one boot and one slipper. I pointed it out to him, and he said, Do you think it matters? I told him I was sure Francis would not like him to go out like that, the only argument to affect him. When he was staying with me here in Vancouver, Dorothy Collins had to give him the once-over before he went lecturing. They had left Francis in Palos Verdes, as she wasn't very well. In 1904, were published a monograph on Watts, The Napoleon of Notting Hill, and an important chapter in a composite book, England, a Nation. The Watts is among the results of Gilbert's art studies. Its reviewers admired it somewhat in the degree of their admiration for the painter. But for a young man at that date to have seen the principles of art he lays down meant rare vision. The portrait painter, he says, is trying to express the reality of the man himself, but he is not above taking hints from the book of life with its quaint old woodcuts. G.K. makes us see all the painter could have thought or imagined, and he sets us before Mammon and Jonah and Hope and bids us read their legend and note the texture and the lines of the painting. His distinction between the Irish mysticism of Yeats and the English mysticism of Watts is especially valuable. In the book, perhaps even more than the Browning or the Dickens, manifests Gilbert's insight into the mind of the last generation. The depths and limitations of the Victorian outlook may be read in G. F. Watts. The story of the writing of the Napoleon was told to me in part by Francis, while part appeared in an interview given by Gilbert, in which he recalled it his first important book. Quoted in Chesterton by Cyril Clemens, pages 16 and 17. I was broke, only ten shillings in my pocket. Leaving my worried wife, I went down Fleet Street, got a shave, and then ordered for myself at the Cheshire Cheese an enormous luncheon of my favorite dishes and a bottle of wine. It took my all, but I could then go to my publishers fortified. I told them I wanted to write a book and outline the story of Napoleon of Notting Hill. But I must have twenty pounds, I said, before I begin. We will send it to you on Monday. If you want the book, I replied, you will have to give it to me today, as I am disappearing to write it. They gave it. Francis, meanwhile, sat at home thinking, as she told me, hard thoughts of his disappearance with their only remaining coin. Then, dramatically, he appeared with twenty golden sovereigns and poured them into her lap. Referring to this incident later, Gilbert said, What a fool a man is, when he comes to the last ditch, not to spend the last farthing to satisfy the inner man before he goes out to fight a battle of his wits. But it was his way to let the money shortage become acute and then deal with it abruptly. 
Frank Swinderden relates that when, as a small boy, he was working for J.M. Dent, Gilbert appeared after office hours with a Dickens preface, but refused to leave it because Swinderton, the only soul left in the place, could not give him the agreed remuneration. The Napoleon is the story of a war between the London suburbs and grew largely from his meditations on the Boer War. Besides being the best of his fantastic stories, it contains the most picturesque account of Chesterton's social philosophy that he ever gave, but it certainly puzzles some of the critics. One American reviewer feels that he might have understood the book if he had an intimate knowledge of the history of the various boroughs of London and of their present-day characteristics. Others treat the story as a mere joke, and many feel that it is a bad descent after the Browning. Too infernally clever for anything, says one. Oberon Quinn, King of England, chosen by lot, as are all kings and all other officials by the date of this story, which is a romance of the future, is one of the two heroes of this book. He is simply a sense of humor incarnate. His little elfish face and figure was recognized by old Pauline's as suggested by a form master of their youth, but by the entire reviewing world as Max Beerbohm. The illustrations by Graham Robertson were held to be unmistakably Max, Francis notes in her diary. A delightful dinner party at the Lanes. The talk was mostly about Napoleon. Max took me in to dinner and was really nice. He is a good fellow. His costume was extraordinary. Why should an evening waistcoat have four large white pearl buttons, and why should he look that peculiar shape? He seems only pleased at the way he has been identified with King Oberon. All right, my dear chap, he said to G, who was trying to apologize? Mr. Lane, I settled it all at lunch. I think he was a little put out at finding no red carpet put down for his royal feet, and we had quite a discussion as to whether he ought to precede me into the dining room. Graham Robertson was on the left. He was jolly, too, kept on producing wonderful rings and stones out of his pockets. He said he wished he could go about covered in the pieces of a chandelier. The other guests were Lady Seaton, Mrs. W. K. Clifford, Mr. W. W. Howells, and his daughter, to burn Jonesy to be really attractive, Mr. Taylor, police magistrate, and Mrs. Eichholz, Mrs. Lane's mother, who is more beautiful than anything except a wee baby. In fact, she looks exactly like one, so dainty and small. She could never at any time have been as pretty as she is now. Gilbert and Max and I drove to his house, Max's, where he basely enticed us in. He gave me fearful preserved fruits, which ruined my dress, but he made himself very entertaining. Home, one thirty. Caring for nothing in the world but a joke, King Oberon decrees that the dull and respectable London boroughs shall be given city guards in resplendent armor, each borough to have its own coat of arms, its city walls, toxin, and the like. The idea is taken seriously by the second hero, Adam Wayne of Notting Hill, an enthusiast utterly lacking any sense of humor who goes to war with the other boroughs of London to protect a small street which they have designed to pull down in the interests of commercial development. Pimlico, Kensington, and the rest attack Notting Hill. Men bleed and die in the contest, and by the magic of the sword, the old ideas of local patriotism and beauty and civic life return to England. The conventional politician Barker, who begins the story in a frock coat 
and irreproachable silk hat, ends it clad in purple and gold. When Notting Hill, become imperial-minded, goes down to destruction in a sea of blood, Oberon Quinn confesses to Wayne that this whole story, so full of human tragedy and hopes and fears, had been merely the outcome of a joke. To him, all life was a joke. To Wayne, an epic. And this antagonism between the humorist and the fanatic has created the whole wild story. Wayne has the last word. I know of something that will alter that antagonism, something that is outside us, something that you and I have all our lives, perhaps taken too little account of. The equal and eternal human being will alter that antagonism, for the human being sees no real antagonism between laughter and respect. The human being, the common man, whom mere geniuses like you and me can only worship like a god. When dark and dreary days come, you and I are necessary, the pure fanatic, the pure satirist. We have between us remedied a great wrong. We have lifted the modern cities into that poetry which everyone who knows mankind knows to be immeasurably more common than the commonplace. But in healthy people there is no war between us. We are but the two lobes of the brain of a plowman. Laughter and love are everywhere. The cathedrals, built in the ages that loved God, are full of blasphemous grotesques. The mother laughs continually at the child. The lover laughs continually at the lover. The wife at the husband. The friend at the friend. Oberon Quinn, we have been too long separated. Let us go out together. You have a halberd, and I have a sword. Let us start our wanderings over the world, for we are its two essentials. Come, it is already day. In the blank white light, Oberon hesitated a moment. Then he made the formal salute with his halberd, and they went away together into the unknown world. This is very important to the understanding of Chesterton. With him, profound gravity and exuberant fooling were always intermingled, and some of his deepest thoughts are conveyed by a pun. He always claimed to be intensely serious while hating to be solemn, and it was a mixture apt to be misunderstood. If gravity and humor are the two lobes of the average man's brain, the average man does not bring them into play simultaneously to anything like the extent that Chesterton did. Oberon Quinn and Adam Wayne are the most living individuals in any of his novels, just because they are the two lobes of his brain individualized. All his stories abound in adventure are admirable in their vivid descriptions of London or the countryside of France or England seen in fantastic visions. They are living in the portrayal of ideas by the road of argument. But the characters are chiefly energies through whose lips Gilbert argues with Gilbert until some conclusion shall be reached. In 1905 came the Club of Queer Trades, least good of the Fantasia, and even admirers have begun to wonder if too many fields are being tried. In 1906, Dickens and Heretics. It will remain a moot point whether the Browning or the Dickens is Chesterton's best work of literary criticism. The Dickens is the more popular, largely because Dickens is the more popular author. Most Dickens' idolaters read anything about their idol, if only for the pleasure of the quotations. And no Dickens' idolater could fail to realize that here was one even more wrapped in worship than himself. After the publication of Charles Dickens, Chesterton undertook a series of prefaces to the novels. 
In one of them, he took the trouble to answer one only of the criticisms the book had produced, the comment that he was reading into the work of Dickens something that Dickens did not mean. Criticism does not exist to say about authors the things that they knew themselves. It exists to say the things about them which they did not know themselves. If a critic says that the Iliad has a pagan rather than a Christian piety, or that it is full of pictures made by one epithet, of course he does not mean that Homer could have said that. If Homer could have said that, the critic would leave Homer to say it. The function of criticism, if it has a legitimate function at all, can only be one function, that of dealing with the subconscious part of the author's mind, which only the critic can express, and not with the conscious part of the author's mind, which the author himself can express. Either criticism is no good at all, a very defensible position, or else criticism means saying about the author the very things that would have made him jump out of his boots. Introduction to Old Curiosity Shop, reprinted in Criticisms and Appreciations of the Works of Charles Dickens, 1933 edition, pages 51 to 52. He attended not all to the crop of comments on his inaccuracies. One reviewer pointed out that Chesterton had said that every postcard Dickens wrote was a work of art, but Dickens died on June 9, 1870, and the first British postcard was issued October 1st. 1870. A wonderful instance of Dickens' never-varying propensity to keep ahead of his age. After all, what did such things matter? Bernard Shaw, however, felt that they did. He wrote a letter from which I think Gilbert got an important hint, utilized later in his introduction to David Copperfield. 6th of September, 1906. Dear GKC, As I am a supersaturated Dickensite, I pounced on your book and read it, as Wegg read Gibbon and other authors right slap through. In view of a second edition, let me hastily note for you one or two matters. Firstly and chiefly, a fantastic and colossal howler in the best manner of Mrs. Nickleby and Flora Finching. There is an association in your mind well-founded between the quarrel over Dickens's determination to explain his matrimonial difficulty to the public and the firm of Bradbury and Evans. There is also an association equally well-founded between B and E and Punch. They were the publishers of Punch, but to gravely tell the 20th century that Dickens wanted to publish his explanation in Punch is gas and gators carried to an incredible pitch of absurdity. The facts are B and E were the publishers of household words. They objected to Dickens explaining in H.W., he insisted. They said that in that case, they must take H.W. out of his hands. Dickens, like a lion threatened with ostracism by a louse in his tail, published his explanation, which stands to this day and informed his readers that they were to ask in future, not for household words, but for all the year round. Household words left Dickens less, gasped for a few weeks and died. All the year round, in exactly the same format, flourished and entered largely into the diet of my youth. There is a curious contrast between Dickens's sentimental indiscretions concerning his marriage and his sorrows and his quarrels, and his impenetrable reserve about himself as displayed in his published correspondence. He writes to his family about waiters, about hotels, about screeching tumblers of hot brandy and water, and about the seasick man in the next berth. But 
never one really intimate word, never a real confession of his soul. David Copperfield is a failure as an autobiography because when he comes to deal with the grown-up David, you find that he has not the slightest intention of telling you the truth, or indeed anything about himself. Even the child David is more remarkable for the reserves than for the revelations. He falls back on fiction at every turn. Clennam and Pip are the real autobiographies. I find that Dickens is at his greatest after the social awakening which produced hard times. Little Dorrit is an enormous work. The change is partly the disillusion produced by the unveiling of capitalist civilization, but partly also Dickens' discovery of the gulf between himself as a man of genius and the public. That he did not realize this early is shown by the fact that he found out his wife, before he married her, as much too small for the job, and yet plumbed the difference so inadequately that he married her thinking he could go through with it. When the situation became intolerable, he must have faced the fact that there was something more than incompatibilities between him and the average man and woman. Little Dorrit is written, like all the later books, frankly and somewhat sadly, de en bras. In them, Dickens recognizes that quite everyday men are as grotesque as Bunsby. Sparkler, one of the most extravagant of all of his gargoyles, is an untouched photograph almost. Wegg and Riderhood are sinister and terrifying because they are simply real, which Squeers and Sykes are not. And please remark that while Squeers and Sykes have their speeches written with anxious verisimilitude, comparatively, Wegg says, man shrouds and grapple. Mr. Venus, or she dies. And Riderhood describes Lightwood's sherry, when retracting his confession, as I will not say a hookest wine, but a wine as far from healthy for the mind. Dickens doesn't care what he makes Wegg and Riderhood or Sparkle or Mrs. F.'s aunt say, because he knows them, and he has got them and knows what matters and what doesn't. Fledgeby, Lamel, Jerry Cruncher, Trab's boy, Wopsle, etc., etc., are human beings as seen by a master. Swiveller and Mantellini are human beings as seen by Trab's boy. Sometimes Trab's boy has the happier touch. When I'm told that young John Chivery, whose epitaphs you ignore whilst quoting Mrs. Sapsies, would have gone barefoot through the prison against rules for Little Dorrit, had it been paved with red-hot plowshares, I'm not so affected by his chivalry as by Swiveller's exclamation when he gets the legacy. For she, the Marchioness, shall walk in silt attire and siller eye to spare. Edwin Drood is no good in spite of the stone-throwing boy, buzzard, and honey thunder. Dickens was a dead man before he began it. Collins corrupted him with plots. And oh, the Philistinism, the utter detachment from the great human heritage of art and philosophy. Why not a sermon on that? GBS. Note in the introduction to David Copperfield what G.K. says as to the break between the two halves of the book. He calls it an instance of weariness in Dickens, a solitary instance. Is not Shaw's explanation at once fascinating and probable? Kate Perugini, the daughter of Dickens, wrote two letters of immense enthusiasm about the book, saying it was the best thing written about her father since Forster's biography. But she shatters the theory put forth by Chesterton that Dickens, thrown into intimacy with a large family of girls, fell in love with them all and happened unluckily to marry the wrong sister. At the time of the marriage, her mother, the eldest of the sisters, was only 18. 
Mary between 14 and 15, very young and childish in appearance, Georgina 8, and Helen 3. Nothing could better illustrate the clash between enthusiasm and despair that fills a Chestertonian while reading any of his literary biographies, for so much is built on this theory which the slightest investigation would have shown to be baseless. Heretics aroused animosity in many minds. Dealing with Browning and Dickens, a man may encounter literary prejudices or enthusiasms, but there is not the intensity of feeling that he finds when he gets into the field with his own contemporaries. Reviewers, who had been extending a friendly welcome to a beginner, found that beginner attacking landmarks in the world of letters, venturing to detest Ibsen and to ask William Archer whether he hung up his stocking on Ibsen's birthday, accusing Kipling of lack of patriotism, it is, said one angrily, unbecoming to spend most of his time criticizing his contemporaries. His sense of mental perspective is an extremely deficient one. The manufacture of paradoxes is really one of the simplest processes conceivable. Mr. Chesterton's sententious wisdom. In fact, it was like the scene in the Napoleon of Notting Hill when most people present were purple with anger, but an intellectual few were purple with laughter. And even now, most of the reviewers seem not to understand where G.K. stood or what was his philosophy. Bernard Shaw says one, whom as a disciple, he naturally exalts. This after a series of books in which G.K. had exposed, with perfect lucidity and a wealth of examples, a view of life differing from Shaw's in almost every particular. One reviewer clearly discerned the influence of Shaw in the Napoleon of Notting Hill, but without a trace of Shaw's wonderful humor and perspicacity. Bellick's approval was hearty. He wrote, I am delighted with what I have read in the Daily Mail. Hit them again, hurt them. Continue to binge and accept my blessing. Give them hell. It is the only book of yours I have read right through, which shows that I don't read anything, which is true enough. This letter is written in the style of Herbert Paul. Continue to bang them about. You did wrong not to come to the South Coast. Margate is a fraud. What looks like sea in front of it is really a bank with hardly any water over it. I stuck on it once in the year 1904, so I know all about it. Moreover, the harbor at Margate is not a real harbor. Ramsgate, round the corner, has a real harbor on the true sea. In both towns are citizens not averse to bribes. Do not fail to go out in a boat on the last of the ebb as far as the long nose. There you will see the astonishing phenomenon of the tide racing down the North Foreland three hours before it has turned in the estuary of the Thames, which you at Margate foolishly believed to be the sea. Item. No one in Margate can cook. Gilbert was not really concerned in this book to bang his contemporaries about so much as to study their mistakes and so discover what was wrong with modern thought. Shaw, George Moore, Ibsen, Wells, The Mildness of the Yellow Press, Omar and the Sacred Vine, Rudyard Kipling, Smart Novelists and the Smart Set, Joseph McCabe and A Divine Frivolity. The collection was a heterogeneous one. And in the introduction, the author tells us he is not concerned with any of these men as a brilliant artist or a vivid personality, but as a heretic. That is to say, a man whose view of things has the hardihood to differ from mine, as a man whose philosophy is quite solid, quite coherent, and quite wrong. I revert to the doctrinal methods of the 13th century, inspired by the general hope of getting something done. 
In England, a nation, and even more in the study of Kipling, in this book there is one touch of inconsistency which we shall meet again in his later work. He hated imperialism, yet he glorified Napoleon. Himself ardently patriotic, he accused Kipling of lack of patriotism on the ground that a man could not at once love England and love the empire. For there was a curious note in the anti-imperialism of the Chester Belloc that has not always been recognized. The ordinary anti-imperialist holds that England has no right to govern an empire and that her leadership is bad for the other dominions. But the Chester Belloc view was that the dominions were inferior and unworthy of a European England. The phrase suburbs of England quoted in a later chapter was typical. But Kipling was thrilled by those suburbs, and Chesterton, who had as a boy admired Kipling, attacked him in heretics for lack of patriotism. Puck of Pook's Hill was not yet written, but like Kipling's poem on Sussex, it expressed a patriotism much akin to Gilbert's own. Remember the man who returned from the South African belt to be the squire's gardener? Me that have done what I've done, me that have seen what I've seen. That man, with eyes open to a sense of his own tragedy, was speaking for Chesterton's people of England, who have not spoken yet. Yes, they have spoken through the mouth of English genius, as Langland's Piers Plowman, as Dickens' Sam Weller, but not least as Kipling's Tommy Aitkins. It was a pity Chesterton was deaf to this last voice. With a better understanding of Kipling, he might in turn have made Kipling understand what was needed to make England marry England once again, have given him the philosophy that should make his genius fruitful. For the huge distinction between Chesterton and most of his contemporaries lay not in the wish to get something done, but in the conviction that the right philosophy alone could produce fruitful action. A parable in the introduction shows the point at which his thinking had arrived. Suppose that a great commotion arises in the street about something. Let us say a lamp post, which many influential persons desire to pull down. A grey-clad monk, who is the spirit of the Middle Ages, is approached upon the matter and begins to say, in the arid manner of the schoolman, Let us first of all consider, my brethren, the value of light. If light be in itself good, at this point he is somewhat excusably knocked down. All the people make a rush for the lamppost. The lamppost is down in ten minutes, and they go about congratulating each other on their unmedieval practicality. But as things go on, they do not work out so easily. Some people have pulled the lamppost down because they wanted the electric light, some because they wanted old iron, some because they wanted darkness, because their deeds were evil. Some thought it's not enough for a lamppost, some too much. Some acted because they wanted to smash municipal machinery, some because they wanted to smash something. And there is a war in the night, no man knowing whom he strikes. So gradually and inevitably, today, tomorrow, or the next day, there comes back the conviction that the monk was right after all. That all depends on what is the philosophy of light. Only what we might have discussed under the gas lamp, we now must discuss in the dark. Heretics pages 22 to 23. Every year during this time at Battersea, the press books reveal an increasing flood of engagements. Gilbert lectures for the New Reform Club on political watchwords, for the Midland Institute on modern journalism, for the men's meeting of the South London Central Mission on brass bands, and for the London Association of Correctors of the Press at the Trocadero for the CSU at Churchkirk 
Accrington, and at the men's service at the Colchester Moot Hall. He debates at the St. German's Literary Society, maintaining that the most justifiable wars are the religious wars, opens the Anti-Puritan League at the Shaftesbury Club, speaks for the Richmond and Kew branch of the PNEU on the romantic element in morality, for the Ilkley PSA on Christianity and materialism, and so on without end. All these are on a few pages of his father's collection interspersed with clippings, recording articles, and reviews innumerable, introductions to books, interviews, and controversies. There was almost no element of choice in these engagements. G.K. was intensely good-natured and hated saying no. He was the lion of the moment, and they all wanted him to roar for them. In spite of the large heading, lest we forget, that met his eye daily in the drawing room, he did forget a great deal. In fact, friends say he forgot any engagement made when Francis was not present to write it down. Directly, it was made. She had to do memory and all the practical side of life for him. There might have been one slight chance of making Gilbert responsible in these matters. That chance was given to his parents and by them thrown away. How far it is even possible to groom and train a genius is doubtful. Anyhow, no attempt was made. Waited on hand and foot by his mother, never made to wash or brush himself as a child, personally conducted to the tailor as he grew older, given by his parents no money for which to feel responsible, not made to keep hours, how could Francis take a man of twenty-seven and make him over again? But there is, of course, a most genuine difficulty in all this, which Gilbert once touched on when he denied the accusation of absence of mind. It was, he claimed, presence of mind on his thoughts that made him unaware of much else. And indeed, no man can be using his mind furiously in every direction at once. Anyone who has done even a little creative work, anyone even who has lived with people who do creative work, knows the sense of bewilderment with which the mind comes out of the world of remoter but greater reality and tries to adjust with the daily world in which meals are to be ordered, letters answered, and engagements kept. What must this pain of adjustment not have been to a mind almost continuously creative? For I have never known anyone work such long hours with a mind at such tension as Gilbert's. There was no particular reason why he should have written his article for the Daily News as the reporter writes his, at top speed, at a late hour. But he usually did. The writing of it was left till the last minute, and if at home, he would need Francis to get it off for him before the deadline was reached. But he often wrote by preference in Fleet Street, at the Cheshire Cheese or some little pub where journalists gathered, and then he would hire a cab to take the article a hundred yards or so to the Daily News office. The cab in those days was the handsome, with its two huge wheels over which one perilously ascended while the driver sat above, only to be communicated with by opening a sort of trap door in the roof. Gilbert once said that the imaginative Englishman in Paris would spend his days in a cafe. The imaginative Frenchman in London would spend his driving in a hansom. In Napoleon, the thought of the cab moves him to write. Poet whose cunning carved this amorous cell where twain may dwell. Evie Lucas, his daughter tells us, used to say that if one were invited to drive with Gilbert in a handsome cab, it would have to be two cabs. But this is not strictly true. For in those days, I drove with Gilbert and Francis, too, in a hansom. He and I side by side, she on his knee. 
We must have given to the populace the impression, he says, any handsome would give on first view to an ancient Roman or a simple barbarian, that the driver riding on high and flourishing his whip was a conqueror carrying off his helpless victims. Like the buffers at the veneering election, he spent much of his time taking cabs and getting a boat, and not even getting a boat in them, but leaving them standing at the door for hours on end. Calling on one publisher, he placed in his hands a letter that gave excellent reasons why he could not keep the engagement. The memory, so admirable in literary quotations, was not merely unreliable for engagements, but even for such matters as street numbers and addresses. Edward MacDonald, who worked with him later on G.K.'s Weekly, relates how some months after the paper had changed its address, he failed one day to turn up at a board meeting. Finally, he appeared with an explanation. On calling a taxi at Marlbone, he realized that he could not give the address, so he told the driver to take him to Fleet Street. There, as his memory still refused to help, he stopped the taxi outside a tea shop, left it there while he was inside, and ordering a cup of tea, began to turn out all his pockets in the hope of finding a letter or proof bearing the address. Then, as no clue could be found, he told the driver to take him to a bookstall that stocked the paper. At the first and the second he drew blanks, but at the third bought a copy of his own paper and thus discovered the address. I am not sure at what date he began to hate writing anything by hand. My mother treasured two handwritten letters. I have none after a friendship of close on 30 years, but I remember on his first visit to my parents' home in Surrey, his calling Francis that he might dictate an article to her. His writing was pictorial and rather elaborate. He drew his signature rather than writing, says Edward MacDonald, who remembers him saying as he signed a check, With many a curve my banks I fret. I wonder if Tennyson fretted his. At one of our earliest meetings, I asked him to write in my autograph book. It was at least five years before the Ballad of White Horse appeared, but the lines may be found almost unchanged in the ballad. Verses made up in a dream, which you won't believe. People, if you have any prayers, say prayers for me, and bury me underneath a stone in the stones of Battersea. Bury me underneath the stone with the sword that was my own to wait till the holy horn is blown and all poor men are free. The dream went on, he said, for pages and pages, and I think Francis was anxious, for the mind must find rest and sleep. The little flat at Battersea was a vortex of requests and engagements, broken promises and promises fulfilled, author's ink and printer's ink, speeches in prospect and speeches in memory, meetings and social occasions. A sincere admirer wrote during this period of his fears of too great a strain on his hero, and from 1904 to 1908, the only change was an increase of pressure. I see that Chesterton has just issued a volume on the art of G.F. Watts. His novel was published yesterday. Soon his monograph on Kingsley should be ready. I believe he has a book on some modern aspects of religious belief in the press. He is part editor of the illustrated booklets on great authors issued by the bookman. He is contributing prefaces and introductions to odd volumes in several series of reprints. He is a constant contributor to the Daily News and the Speaker. He is conducting a public controversy with Blatchford 
of the clarion on atheism and free thinking. He is constantly lecturing and debating and dining out. It is almost impossible to open a paper that does not contain either an article or review or poem or drawing of his, and his name is better known now to compositors than Bernard Shaw. Now, both physically and mentally, Chesterton is a Hercules, and from what I hear of his methods of work, he is capable of a great output without much physical strain. Nevertheless, it is clear, I think, to anyone, that at his present rate of production, he must either wear or tear. No man born can keep so many irons in the fire and not himself come between the hammer and the anvil. It is a pitiable thing to have a good man spend himself so recklessly, and I repeat once more that if he and his friends have not the will or power to restrain him, then there should be a conspiracy of editors and publishers in his favor. Not often is a man like Chesterton born. He should have his full chance, and that can only come by study and meditation, and by slow, steady accumulation of knowledge and wisdom. Shan F. Bullock, in the Chicago Evening Post, 9th of April, 1906. In a volume made up of introductions written at this time to individual novels of Dickens, we find a passage that might well be Gilbert's summary of his own life. The calls upon him at this time were insistent and overwhelming. This necessarily happens at a certain stage of a successful writer's career. He was just successful enough to invite others and not successful enough to reject them. There was almost too much work for his imagination and yet not quite enough work for his housekeeping. And it is a quite curious tribute to the quite curious greatness of Dickens that in this period of youthful strain, we do not feel the strain, but feel only the youth. His own amazing wish to write equaled or outstripped even his reader's amazing wish to read. Working too hard did not cure him of his abstract love of work. Unreasonable publishers asked him to write ten novels at once, but he wanted to write twenty novels at once. Thus, too, with Gilbert. The first eight years of his married life saw in swift succession the publication of ten books, comprising literary and art criticism and biography, poetry, fiction, or rather fantasy, light essays, and religious philosophy. All these were so full at once of the profound seriousness of youth and of the bubbling wine of its high spirits as to recall another thing Gilbert said that Dickens was accused of superficiality by those who cannot grasp that there is foam upon deep seas. That was the matter in dispute about himself, and very furiously disputed it, was during these years. Was G.K. serious or merely posing? Was he a great man or a mountebank? Was he clear or obscure? Was he a genius or a charlatan? Audacious reconciliation, he pleaded or rather asserted, for his tone could seldom be called a plea. It is a mark not of frivolity, but of extreme seriousness. A man who deals in harmonies, who only matches stars with angels or lambs with spring flowers, he indeed may be frivolous, for he is taking one mood at a time, and perhaps forgetting each mood as it passes. But a man who ventures to combine an angel and an octopus must have some serious view of the universe. The man who should write a dialogue between two early Christians might be a mere writer of dialogues, but a man who should write a dialogue between an early Christian and the missing link would have to be a philosopher. The more widely different the types talked of, the more serious and universal must be the philosophy which talks of them. The mark of the light and thoughtless writer is the harmony of his subject matter. The mark of the thoughtful writer is its apparent diversity. 
The most flippant lyric poet might write a pretty poem about lambs, but it requires something bolder and graver than a poet. It requires an ecstatic prophet to talk about the lion lying down with the lamb. G.K. Chesterton, Criticisms and Appreciations of the World of Charles Dickens, 1933, pages 68 to 69. A man starting to write a thesis on Chesterton's sociology once complained bitterly that almost none of his books were indexed, so he had to submit to the disgusting necessity of reading them all through, for some striking view on sociology might well be embedded in a volume of art criticism or be in the very center of a fantastic romance. Chesterton's was a philosophy universal and unified, and it was at this time growing fast and finding exceedingly varied techniques of expression. But the whole of it was, in a sense, in each of them, in each book, almost in each poem. As he himself says of the universe of Charles Dickens, there is something in it. There is in all great creative writers, like the account in Genesis of the light being created before the sun, moon, and stars, the idea before the machinery that made it manifest. Pickwick is, in Dickens' career, the mere mass of light before the creation of sun or moon. It is the splendid, shapeless substance of which all his stars are ultimately made. And again, he said what he had to say and yet not all he had to say. Wild pictures, possible stories, tantalizing and attractive trains of thought, perspectives of adventure crowded so continually upon his mind that at the end there was a vast mass of them left over, ideas that he literally had not the opportunity to develop, tales that he literally had not the time to tell. End of chapter 11